Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. One of the things that for me has strongly commended the Christian faith for a long time is that it's in a way not just faith. There's a fair bit of historical grunt that goes behind it. It's more than blind faith. I have worked and survived as a journalist for just on four decades. I was never trained to, nor have I survived by, taking a leap in the dark. But the historical credibility of this faith, the reliability of the Bible, and its relevance are still vitally important questions to be taken on head-on. And my next guest on Open House is an internationally renowned specialist on those very questions. Dr. Darrell Bock is the Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in the United States. He's the author of 20 books, a New York Times best-selling author, and is the author of the two thickest books in my study at home, an epic twin-volume commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Bock is in Australia with the Bible Society and the Centre for Public Christianity. Doctor, welcome to Open House. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a great privilege to have you on the program. Is it not a tricky mix to be someone who has a mind and heart personally committed to this faith and an historian? Is there not a clash of the two? Might not your faith colour the history? Well, I think that the history and the faith belong together because I see the creation as being part of a work in the hand of God, and I don't think that's just a matter of faith. I think you can look at the nature of our creation. We were this morning walking through the botanical gardens, absolutely gorgeous, and you sit there and say, did that just happen by accident? I don't think so. And so so to me, it's a wedding between, between creation and the creator that makes life uh, full and gives a richness to life that's important. I didn't come to this uh, normally. I actually didn't grow up in a Christian home. It's something that, has, uh, that came on me while I was in college. Well, actually, while I was doing a work as a history major, a European history major at the University of Texas in Austin. And so, so to me, it's not a clash at all. It actually is, a, is a, a wedding that makes sense out of life. So the history stands on its own without the faith as well. That's right. In fact, sometimes I will write, and I will write using arguments that, uh, that you wouldn't see in the church, that I'm using rules that, that historical critics use and that those rules were made by historical critics who were challenging the church. And I'm sitting here saying, in some cases, with some events, I can take those rules and still show you a good case for Jesus using logic that you'd use for any event. Can I get you to take us back and perhaps paint a picture of the life of the early Christian community during Jesus' time and the days of the early church? The accounts of his life were for quite a time communicated only orally, weren't they? That's correct. And what we don't appreciate, because we're now a digital culture and we were for a long time a verbal culture that was used to books and having words on a page, is how oral culture was in the first century. People were used to communicating their stories and telling their events orally. They were rarely written down. They were passed on by word of mouth, and they were used to doing this. I like to tell people when I talk about this that that the closest thing to orality we have in the modern world are children under the age of five before they learn to read. And they hear stories, they hear them over and over again, they hear them orally, they live in an oral world. And I used to read books to my kids when they were young. And if I changed that story, my three-year-old would tell me very quickly, Daddy, that's not how that story goes. Or miss a page. Exactly correct. <laughs> and so, so, so we forget what it is to function orally and how humans uh, process information initially before they learn to deal with a written word and before they learn to deal with a digitized word. To us in the digital era, the oral era seems somewhat risky 
and unreliable. That's true, but it actually uh, can be very carefully uh, monitored and passed on. There are traditions, we know this from a variety of uh, sources, not just Christian sources. There can be traditions that can be passed on for generations very faithfully to the core of a story that tells you what happened long ago. And so um, we're, just, we're just not used to operating that way. And I think, I think our foreignness to what orality is oftentimes gets in the way of our appreciating what orality was capable of. In the life of the early church, they established rites, they established hymns to remember Jesus as well. That was part of the oral culture. Yes, in fact, I have a part of a lecture that I often do saying, you know, how was theology taught before there was a functioning New Testament? Really, you don't have a functioning New Testament for two centuries in the way that we're talking about the way we think about it. You might have had a church that had a book here and there that we see in our New Testament, but not the whole. So how did you teach the theology then? Well, you did it through the hymns that sung the core theology. You did it through the rites of the church baptism and the Lord's Supper, which communicated the core theology. Uh, You did it in little doctrinal summaries that literally were only two or three verses long that had tremendous amounts of theology in them, packed in them. And, and very, very memorable, laid out in even lines so that you can memorize it easily, that kind of thing. And these things floated through the worship of the church and taught people the core ideas of their faith. So from that oral culture, where did the Gospels begin, those documents that were written down? Where'd they begin and why? Well, that's a terrific question. And actually what happens is this gets, gets twisted out of the oral cultural context by a lot of people who are skeptical. They'll say, look, it was 40 years before they sat down and started to write down these Gospels. And over 40 years, lots of things can happen across an oral tradition. Well, first of all, the oral tradition can be solid in what it remembers. But the second part of it is because an oral tradition valued the word of eyewitnesses, Um, they said it was more important. We have a quote from Papias in the early 2nd century, I value the word of of someone who spoke and experienced the event far more than I do a word on the page. And so in effect, what he's saying is, is, is that the oral word it was seen as the authentic way to hear about what was going on with Jesus. And it was only once you started to lose those witnesses to death and they were dying off, that you sat down and said, well, we better record this tradition and pass it on. Now we'll write it down. And so the reason you get the Gospels, I think, as late as you do is because it's at that point you're beginning to lose this, this army of witnesses that you had of Jesus who are passing off the scene. And we actually still benefit from their testimony today because what was recorded was their testimony. We're still hearing their voice, if you will, coming out of the oral culture that they came out of uh, when we read the scriptures. You say that oral transmission was solid. That was your word. But how can we be sure that there were not Chinese whispers ever so subtly changing and rechanging and rechanging as was handed down and then copied. Well, I appreciate the Asian form of the skepticism here with Chinese whispers because in the States, the way it gets raised is what we call the telephone gang, which is you tell the story at the front end, you pass it on by word of mouth over, and by the time you get to the end, it's a very different story. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We're describing the same phenomena. That's a kind of uncontrolled uh, orality, which does exist, and there's no doubt that... But when the story matters... The comparison I like to make is imagine what happens when a family gathers after someone dies and you're sharing stories of your experience of this person. 
uh, and everyone is, and it's a corporate issue. It's not merely the memory of an individual, but someone in the family shares this about mom or dad who's passed away. And all of a sudden, another child says, well, I remember this, and, and I remember it this way. And, and what you get is a gist of the story that, that tells you about the person, really tells you about the person. The details may differ. Just like a husband and wife may tell the story of their courtship, and it'll be, have different details in it. But, but the core of the story is there. That's a kind of controlled tradition. It's informal, but it's controlled oral tradition. And we think that is the way in which the early church tradition functioned. It wasn't just the function of one person's voice. It wasn't just random memory being passed on. There were several people, all of whom experienced the same thing, who together contributed to the shape of what this tradition was saying. And these dynamics by which you analyze this process are as much history as they are faith, probably more history. Well, yes, exactly. Method, in terms of method. Exactly, that's true. And there have been a, there have been a lot of studies done about memory, some of which are positive, some of which are negative. I remember a debate I had with John Dominic Crossan about memory in which he was trying to make the point that memory is fickle, and it can be. And he used the experiment that was, taken, that was undertaken at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where they took a variety of freshmen the year the Challenger exploded. This was the spaceship that the U.S. sent up with a, with a school teacher in it that blew up on, on liftoff. It's one of the few disasters we've had in our space program, and it traumatized the country. And, and they interviewed these freshmen for what they, where they were when they heard about it. And then three years later when they were seniors, they came back and interviewed them again. They compared the results. And the interesting thing that they found, this is the point Crossan was trying to make, was they tended to gravitate toward their more recent memory, which actually was out of line with their earliest memory, and so it shows how memory distorts. That was his point. So I had the, response of, uh, I had the responsibility of responding to this uh, and the idea of this theory, and I said, well, I said, there's something about this experiment that doesn't quite fit what's going on in the Gospels because those freshmen don't have anything at stake in riding that ship. I said, what if we had taken astronauts out of NASA and asked them where they were when it exploded with the possibility that they were going to have to get in a ship like that one day and actually go up into space, I suspect the results would be slightly different because there was something at stake in the memory and there was something corporate in a corporate identity that was wrapped up in what was at stake in the memory. It wasn't just a random memory sample. And so that makes a difference. And actually there's an Australian, Robert McIver, who's written a book on Jesus and memory recently in which he analyzes all these memory studies, applies them to the Gospels, and again makes the point about the solidity of the gist of these stories that comes through an oral tradition that, that turns in a more corporate direction and in a more uh, engaged direction because people have something at stake in it. Because these people were very deeply committed to Jesus. Absolutely. And the process of handing on the stories of his life. They might have also been tempted to gloss him up more than the history of it. Except that that glossing up would get them into trouble. So you don't, you, you know, you want to be careful about about what you what you write about and what you what you pray for. I mean, it, there's there's a sense in which the glossing up of Jesus ran up against the Greco-Roman powerhouse that was the empire, and they were saying things about Jesus that they wouldn't just invent because uh, they, there had to be some really core belief that God was behind this and that this was really happening for them to have the nerve, if you will, to stand up to the kind of reaction that the Roman Empire was giving them because they were claiming Jesus to be a king that Rome didn't appoint and the Romans believed in law and order. You follow our law or we'll put you in order. The account of the resurrection is probably a good example of that. It's a, it's a terrific example of that. And the way in which the story is told is an example of that because it begins with witnesses who culturally don't count as witnesses, women. 
And most people don't get this. I mean, think about, think about the alternative model. The alternative model is they made it up to keep Jesus's, the hope of Jesus alive, you know, keep hope alive, keep Jesus alive. And so the PR meeting is, well, we're going to sell a difficult idea, a resurrection that most people don't believe in. And the way we're going to do it as a leadoff is we're going to use witnesses who don't count culturally as witnesses. That's, that's our plan. Okay? No one would have invented a plan this way. The very fact that women were chosen who didn't count culturally as witnesses but were the first witnesses consistently according to these accounts, showing the fact that this, these women were in the story. They were a part of what happened. They were a part of what created the transformation. Then on the other side, when they go to report it, the leaders respond so wonderfully to these women. They basically say it was an idle tale. It's been a tough few days. You know, you just need to settle down. You're a little overwrought. That's not a way you commend your leadership to sell a difficult idea. It's what we call in historical studies the criterion of embarrassment. The, the, the detail is so embarrassing, you wouldn't invent it as a part of an invented story. It has to be part of a real story. And yes, Daryl, it took about a century before the Gospels, as we know them, came together. And when I look back at 1912, a century ago, that seems a long time for something like that to form. Well, again, you need to remember that what you're dealing with is simply a written deposit of something that's actually been alive and at work and being remembered for over a century. Part of what we're doing is we're uh, imposing the way we think about the way written materials work without thinking about the process that feeds into those written materials. You know, the interesting thing about, about tradition in a Jewish context is it can be very, very accurate. We have found texts of Isaiah that span a thousand years that are almost virtually exact through the copying process, which shows you how careful this kind of passing on can be when, when the view is something matters that's being passed on. Is it possible to prove the historical reliability of these documents, or is that an exercise of faith as well? Well, I think it's something between proof and an exercise of faith. I can't prove to you 100% that these things happen. It's a little bit like the situation in a law court where someone comes in and says, we have DNA, we have the DNA of the accused by the victim, and a defense lawyer walks in and says, yeah, but DNA doesn't come with a time stamp on it. That DNA could have been laid down at any point in time, had nothing to do with the murder, and you don't know that it had anything to do with the cause and effect of the murder. Now, that's a possibility. So I can't, I can't exclude that. But what you do ask people to do is to think through what's more likely, the model of explaining how these people were willing to give their life for something that they were supposed to have created out of thin air, or they really were willing to give their life because they really believed it happened. Now, it's possible they could have been misled. That, you have to keep that in mind. But they seem to have really believed it and put their life on the line for it. You wouldn't put your life on the line for something you made up. Yes. So all I can do is I can make a reasonable case that argues this is the most reasonable explanation vis-a-vis the alternatives. Now, if someone comes into this with a worldview that says God doesn't act, God doesn't do miracles, that kind of thing, they're going to immediately say that the things that leave those kinds of things open are not more likely, and they're going to be quick to reject these claims. But what we ask people to do when we talk about these things is, is to suspend your judgment on worldview for a second and just think through the alternatives of what's been laid out here and ask yourselves what, what is more likely. And that's actually how I came to the faith because I did not grow up in a Christian home. I, I was an agnostic growing up. And in the process of analyzing the options of what people were laying out there, I actually said, you know, this actually has more coherence and makes more sense to see that something happened that transformed these people uh, than the alternatives that are put out there. In a way, it's a greater act of faith not to believe? 
Absolutely. I, I would say, uh, I would say, in fact, not only a greater act of faith, I actually think there are elements of that faith that are more blind than the claim that Christians have a blind faith. On Open House, we're with Dr. Darrell Bock, historian and theologian. There were, of course, other spiritual writings over, say, that century. Why were these writings of the Gospels and others that make up the New Testament declared and recognized as Scripture? Why not others? Because what was the process of that decision? Well, again, it, what's going on here is, is that these are the writings that are said to come from the people who directly had contact with Jesus. These other writings that we hear about, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, some of those kinds of works, don't have that kind of pedigree. In fact, they have teaching in them that shows that they didn't emerge out of a Second Temple Jewish context that Jesus, everyone agrees, came out of and, and, and worked with in presenting uh, his understanding of God. And so uh, I like to tell people, if you look at some of these works, they have a view of creation that says God didn't do the real creating, the creation was flawed in the beginning, ideas that don't reflect Second Temple Jewish views of what's going on in the background. Uh, that is that God created, that it was very good in the beginning, uh, those kinds of things. And so the Gnostic doctrine of Christianity, which is what many of these other documents reflect, can't go back to a movement of the 12 disciples that came out of a very faithful Judaism. How does an historian explain divine inspiration of Scripture? Well, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking forward to asking this question. They don't. I mean, I, I can't prove to you that God has spoken. That's what I was saying earlier. All I can do is try and make the case for saying the insight that the Scripture has about the human condition or the way in which we see the emergence of this movement, the best explanation is, is what these people are telling us has motivated them. So I can't prove it in that kind of sense. All I can do is do the best that I can um, to suggest that there is a depth and an appreciation to what is being said here about who we are as people and, and who it is that Jesus was and the uniqueness of what he taught and how he was different from the figures around him that tells us something unusual is going on. But the divine inspiration of Scripture is one of the foundational elements of the reliability of the Bible. That, that makes it so special. Well, what some people will point out is there are evidences of things like prophecy in the Scripture where Isaiah speaks 700 years before Christ comes about what the Messiah is going to be like, things like this that show that someone, someone is orchestrating a plan that these texts are talking about, and that is not a human kind of orchestration. There are other events that are with, told within the story that work this way. I'm going to show you by something you can see about something that you can't see as an evidence that God is at work. That's actually part of the point of the resurrection. But the story I like is the healing of the paralytic because Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and everyone freaks out. And, uh, and so he says, well, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And it's actually a trick question because you can't see sins being forgiven. At least the last time I checked, you know, you don't see it. I mean, I, I tease people. Yeah, you know, this is what it looks like. Bye, sin. Nice to see you. Hope you're away for a long time. Stay away, will you please? You know, you don't see sins being forgiven. But Jesus links something you can't see to something you can see to say God is at work, something unusual that you can see. And so he says to that paralytic, get up and walk. And he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And when that guy gets up and walks, his walk talks, and it says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Something you cannot see is evidenced by something that you can see. And inspiration kind of works like that in a similar kind of way with things like prophecy and the way it talks about the human condition and that kind of thing. Daryl, the reliability, the credibility of all of this is a very real issue for people today in a much more questioning and even cynical age in which we live about what they read than perhaps in past generations when the Bible was held in a greater kind of community reverence. It's quite an issue in trying to convey the truth of Christian faith today. Yes, I think it's a huge issue, and I think in particular for people of faith, if I can say it this way, it's a hard hurdle to get over. We, we are very, very used to presenting the Bible in a way that assumes its credibility because those who are believers appreciate and have experienced what it's claiming and therefore have a respect, inherent respect for it. But for those who don't, where the Bible is the question, helping people to see how they might ought to think about the Bible more seriously takes a little bit of work on the, on the part of those of faith to think about what it's like to think more skeptically or to have questions or to have doubts, particularly when stuff is, is pumped out on a regular basis in our culture that tends to want to communicate an undercutting of a respect for Scripture. And, and people just assume that what they're hearing on a history channel or whatever is true and is so. And unfortunately, in some cases, what they're getting is one half of a debate. It's one thing to establish the credibility and reliability of texts. It is another thing, as you're arguing in Australia for CPX and the Bible Society, that it's relevant for us today. Why do you say these ancient texts are relevant for us today? Because I think they have a profound message to communicate about the human condition. I don't think you look at humanity and how we are behaving in the world today, and we, don't, and, and, and we see we're a pretty dysfunctional lot. Now, the theological term for that is sin, and sin is a kind of a banned four-letter word, so we don't talk about it. But, but the fact is, if you call it dysfunction or you call it sin, you're talking about people behaving badly, people who do not respect one another appropriately, don't love well, don't communicate well. I can speak about that globally. I can talk about what happens within families, and I can see that happening. It's all over the place. And, and people, um, people have kind of numbed themselves um, in our culture, because there are a lot of distractions in our culture, none themselves to death to coming to face to face with this, and the Bible's very honest about it. And I think there is nothing more relevant than looking in the mirror and being able to see what is really going on and not trying to color code it. And so uh, I think the Bible speaks about a truth about where humanity is and what they need and a humility that they need to have, not only in relationship to God, but in relationship to other people that allows a loving heart and a serving heart that is such at the core of the gospel and what Jesus Christ represents and why he came to deal with sin, to produce an environment in which there is forgiveness on the one hand, but there also is the offer of an ability to walk with God that God supplies, that I'm not responsible for earning. Uh, all of that is central to the Christian faith, and I think the Bible has a solution that's unlike any other religion. In every other religion, you've got to, you know, uh, strap on your, your boots and get ready to go and, and get, you know, religion the old-fashioned way. You earn it, and, uh, and that's not the Christian faith. Your own journey to this faith from your upbringing was quite a long process. Can you tell us about the particular prayer you prayed as you were leaving home to go to college? Yes. Well, as I was leaving home to go to college, as I was not a believer. I had had several people talk with me about Christ, and I was tired of hearing them. I was an agnostic, and so 
Uh, but, but when you go to college and you get what we call in the States a potluck roommate, that means you aren't going with a friend to college and rooming together. The school is going to pick who you get, which is a little bit like getting married without an engagement. You know, you just plunk in the room with the person and you're living with them for a year whether you like him or not. So, so I prayed this prayer before I left, and, and everything about it I now know as a theologian is theologically wrong. But just, li- just listen to how this goes. It's really a great, it is a great prayer. It's a great wrong prayer. God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do. Now, isn't that a great opening for a prayer? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, please give me anybody but a Bible-carrying Southern Baptist for a roommate because I want to enjoy my college years. Amen. That was the entire prayer. And everything about it is wrong. I walk up to my room, Bose Hall, 3 East, in, in Dallas, Texas, at SMU, which is where I did my first year of college. And I open the door, and there's a trunk. And on top of the trunk is a Bible right there in the middle, a holy Bible. I didn't have to ask the denomination of my roommate. I knew it. He went, when I did find out, he was a member of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, okay? He was as Southern Baptist as you could be. God had answered my prayer, and he had answered it with a solid no. Yeah. This guy lived out his Christian life very consistently over a year, loved me well, and dealt with all the questions that I put forward uh, about the Christian faith, brought friends in to help him when he couldn't do, get the answers and that kind of thing, and just became a very good, dear friend. And I saw a consistency in his life and a different way of living that stuck out. And so I thought, there must be something to this, uh, because he and his friends all had this quality that, that I, I saw was a different kind of way of living than, than the life that I was being served up in the culture. So it was more a personal argument or example that delivered you to this, rather than an intellectual one? Well, actually, it was a combination of the two, I would say, because he did uh, make an effort to address the questions that I had and to bring in people who could address the questions I had. But in the end, there would be times in which he would give me an answer, and I would all of a sudden I'd develop this terrific compassion for Africans. And I would ask the question, well, what about the heathen in Africa? You know, and, get, and it was like feeding raw meat to a hungry lion who hadn't had any food in months, and he would be off talking about Africans, and he would be away from talking about me and my need for Jesus. And I had been successful. That was a successful deviation of, of, of what I was trying to do to get him off the topic. But in the midst of doing that enough times, it became clear to me that actually what I was doing is I was avoiding the question that he was trying to raise that was very, very personal and very, very direct about how I'm relating to God. And that that question had to be faced up to, that if I wanted to be honest, I needed to shed my compassion for Africans for a moment and think about what God was doing with me. If you take your historical cap off and deal with this personally or more personally, do you ever have doubts about this faith? Well, I do at points in terms of particular points, but the interesting thing about this is because of the way I came at this, the fact that I came at it having come out of a intense doubting, a real doubting, and, and over a four or five year period looking at elements of the Christian faith and thinking my way through it. When I, when I embraced the faith, I, I made a significant move. And there are times now and again where I go, well, that particular argument may, may touch on this detail. I'm not sure about that. But the overall thrust of this, it seems to me, the nature of my experience in coming to faith was so 
considered over a long period of time that it has tended to ameliorate what I would call any sense of severe doubts because I, <laughs> I, I was telling someone yesterday, I've been there, done that. I mean, I had already been there. So, um, so, so the faith was the answer to that question as opposed to having grown up in the faith and then having to kind of come to grips with, do I really believe this? You could see Jesus as just an interesting, even compelling figure of history. Why is he much bigger than that for you? Because he claims to do things and to be things that are unique. I think one of the tragedies of the cultural portrayal of Jesus is that he makes him just one religious great among many. Now, he is a religious great. He belongs in a religious hall of fame, and our culture wants to put him there in many ways and says to us, we respect Jesus, we respect your Jesus. He's in the religious hall of fame. Not many people make the religious hall of fame. But what it misses is the uniqueness of what it is that Jesus is claiming and saying about himself. And in that uniqueness is the message of the Christian faith. The Christian faith has an ethic not because it has an ethic, but because Jesus uniquely supplies something that allows that ethic to be lived out in the world. And when we miss that, we miss, it's like having a car and having a beautiful engine and a beautiful uh, beautiful uh, shell to the car. It looks great, but it has no gasoline. It's pretty useless. <laughs> Dr. Zarabok, I'm so grateful for you uh, setting aside the time for us on Open House. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. It's my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.